From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 132 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling and I am joined by my co-host, producer and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing just fine. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you. So I, I, you know, we we've talked a lot about films in the past and all that. And I saw supposedly Disney has announced there's going to be a CG live action version of Bambi, and they say this is part of their initiative to make classic characters more relevant to today's generation. My feeling is, if you want it more relevant to today's generation, just show them the original. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I you know, I I've enjoyed like Cinderella, the live action version of Cinderella I love. I think they did a wonderful job on that one. And um the rest have slowly gone downhill for me. But I didn't mind Pete's Dragon and, and stuff, but the animal ones just they just have not done it for me at all. I didn't care for Lion King. I did not care for Lady and the Tramp, as we've talked about previously. And I love Bambi. And I, I just don't see how this is, you know, you can only do so much when you're making the animals nature realistic. And part of the charm of the animation is that they don't have to be realistic. They can give them expression and give them those big eyes and and the smiley mouths and all that then make them move in ways that you can't when you're making them nature realistic yep i i'm not excited about this one i mean i'm so i'm so kind of anti this decision that i haven't even actually read an article on it i of course saw it pop up on twitter and facebook and every every place that that has it out there and i just refuse to to read it i i love bambi do not get me wrong on that but i am definitely i I feel like when i was growing up watching animated movies and such you know bambi wasn't my favorite and bambi's a movie that i learned to appreciate as an adult Mm -hmm. i don't think i was too far off where most kids are that they don't have an appreciation for bambi I, I understand the the decisions behind every single other movie they decided to reimagine, with the exception, I think, to a point of of Pete's Dragon. That that one was also kind of a stretch. It worked out for them, but it was a stretch. But for sure, Bambi feels like why are you setting yourself up for this? Just because a just because a lot of adults learn to really love and appreciate the animation and the story. That doesn't mean kids are going to enjoy it. I think they're going to sit through it so bored. Well, you know, they're going to add stuff to it that's going to make it a little more slapsticky and a little more funny. They sort of they did that with uh, Lady and the Tramp 
in my opinion, on Disney Plus. And, you know, so, you know, that's how they make it more relevant. They have to dumb it down a little. And so I'm, um, yeah, and... I think the one of the reasons Bambi there's I think there's two reasons why younger children don't appreciate Bambi today. One is the music is very dated, mm-hmm. and you know it was that choral music that was very popular. But you know you can't have you know, they made a decision unlike Lion King they weren't going to have Thumper and Bambi and Feline sing. You yeah, know? so yeah. it had to be this choral music, which is fine, but it was it was very much a part of that era and so so yeah you know drip drip drop little april showers okay it maybe it doesn't quite hold up for today's generation but those the other reason though that i think that it grows on adults is the artistry those beautiful beautiful watercolor backgrounds by tyrus wong yeah okay and and you know they're not doing that when it in a nature realistic one, no, so not even close. <laughs> that's a huge part of the charm of this film. It is that artistry that the animators and the and the designers on that put into this, and um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I'm sure, and and you know, and they say it's, it, they want to make the classic characters more relevant to today's generation. It's also an easy billion and a half dollars for them. Yeah, you know, at the box office. So you know, they can make it sound all well and good, but it's it's a it's a, this, these are cash cows for them. And I maybe again, this is me not giving Bambi enough credit, even though I do love it, and I I own multiple copies of Bambi alone on Blu-ray. That's how much I enjoy it. I don't. No, if you would have told me that Bambi is a beloved character, I don't know if I would have. Uh, I don't know if I would have pinpointed that right off the bat. I think Bambi is very well known, uh, mostly for the forest scene uh, with Bambi's mother. But I wouldn't have said that yeah. Bambi itself is. This is a beloved Disney character that people want to see reimagined. Hmm. Yeah, but I think they're doing. They're going to now do this with all their films. I mean. You know, so oh, yeah, well. until until they really bomb, and I mean, epically bomb, it's mm-hmm. it's gonna keep happening. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, if it's in three, it's sure to come down the pike. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the only one we can really guarantee that's not getting a sequel, any more sequels, is Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, so. yeah. I think I think they did what they could with that one. <laughs> and the shame was the sequel was better than the original. And I never saw the sequel. Well, if you got bored one night on Disney Plus. <laughs> well, well, you know, speaking of Disney Plus, I've run into an issue at Disney Plus. I don't know if you've heard about this or whatever, but you know, um, in preparation for an upcoming uh, segment that we're doing, I was watching some films on Disney Plus on um, Friday evening, and everything worked just fine on my Sony Bravia, and this will important <laughs> um sun, saturday i turned it on in the late afternoon evening after i'd done what i wanted to get done with my day to watch a couple more things again for an upcoming segment and i get this message i had never seen before oops something went wrong mm-hmm. so, what what is this there was no error code there was no ralph breaks the internet it was just words 
in pretty font. I thought, okay, maybe they're just down or something. Well, Sunday, same thing happened. So I called them and had, first of all, getting a hold of, you have to almost jump through hoops to get a hold of someone, but not as bad as um, other places I've been to. Almost two hours later, well, I'm still getting the oops. We went from, (laughs) we were all over the place. The first person told me that this is an issue that they have been getting calls on. And it and it went to and it and it was clear they had no idea why. Mm-hmm. So there and at first she tried to tell me well it was because my television was was not 2016 or newer and because Disney Plus is newer than new um it wasn't going to work on my TV. I said okay none of that is in your fine print. <laughs> and so and I said I think you'd be getting a lot of calls if that were the case and I said and, and what happened overnight? This suddenly, and you know, my TV suddenly is too old. Yeah, and, and I mean, so she was throwing everything on the wall to see if it would stick. And I was on hold. She went to supervisors. Finally, got her supervisor. He's running through this whole checklist with me of having me do stuff, and he's having me do stuff, and it's frustrating. You know, it's hard because they're on the phone, and he's telling me do things. I'm saying, okay, what you're telling me I should be seeing is not displaying. And and then, and so, oh my gosh. So basically it came down to, it was a problem with my TV. It was because I wasn't tech savvy. It was because we were having miscommunication. The weirdest thing is I found out at one point, and I don't even know how I, I found this out accidentally. Oh, because one of the people had me check to see if it was playing on any other devices. Well, my other weird problem is is that the television upstairs in the master bedroom gave out. And so I bought a new television for downstairs, which hasn't been delivered yet. And then the new one, this this one, the Sony Bravia is being moved upstairs. And so I said, you know, I really want this to be able to work upstairs. And so, um, and so it was... Uh, so I, they says, I said, the only other device I have this on is my iPad Pro. And I opened up my iPad Pro and I said, it's playing. I said, but suddenly what displayed on my television was a message, tap my iPad Pro to make the TV. I said, I don't even know what that means. And so um, I had to tap as the film played on my iPad Pro. I had to tap the little television in the upper corner and and then it pl- uh, the iPad Pro screen and then it played on my TV. Yeah, so you ended up and having said, to airplay it just to watch it on your TV. Yeah, and I said this makes no sense. Well, anyway, it was all my fault, as what it all came down to, and it was my system's fault and all this stuff. I said no, 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 no. I said, did you have an upgrade overnight? No. I said then how could everything in my house change overnight? And anyway, so um, it was so. Anyway, so at this point, we were we were going to get nowhere. I was starting to get riled, and he identified it, <laughs> that I was getting riled. But he still kept putting it on me that it was all at my end, and um, but that he was going to open a service ticket. Not here, twenty four to forty eight hours. Ago. I said, yeah, I know what that means. You open a service ticket. I'll never hear from anybody. He says, oh yeah. no, typically twenty four to forty eight hours. Well, the clock's ticking. We're hitting the forty-eight hour yeah. mark, <laughs> so and I've not heard anything. So. Yeah, and I I can say actually, 
since you posed the question, I have had a similar problem. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. on a Samsung TV, uh, smart TV, and Disney Plus has no problem working with my uh, with my Fire TV, Amazon Fire TV. It has no problem working on my Apple TV. It, it that oh, everything this is, is fine. on my Apple. This is Apple TV. It's running through my Apple TV it's, on my Sony Bravia. See, that's even weirder. But with my with my actual TV itself, I it's a since it is a smart TV, I was able to download the Disney Plus app on there directly. And of course, you know, I have everything else: Hulu, Netflix. <clears throat> All of them showed as they were – they had check marks on them that they were properly downloaded. The only two that didn't were, surprise, surprise, Hulu and Disney+. And I – there was no way to like – with the TV, there was no way to delete them off and re-download them and reinstall them. I had to actually convert everything back to factory settings, and even then, it still didn't fix it. So unless – without a second – device like an amazon fire stick or apple tv if i was just relying on my smart tv like what i should be able to do i wouldn't be able to watch anything right now because it's not working mm -hmm. and i looked up every you know i i searched message boards everywhere and it's like one of those problems that you know every now and then someone can find a random fix that will only work for them and doesn't work for anyone else and that happens. So yeah, I'm I'm also at odds in a way with with uh, with Disney Plus right now. But you know what? Its benefits still outweigh the the bad yeah. aspects. Well, my only thing is, you know, when my daughter visits, it, she wants to watch Disney Plus downstairs, and I want to go like up to bed. I have to leave her my iPad so that she can watch it. And I thought I don't like that. Yeah, yeah, no, you know. <laughs> so. Um, Anyway, but uh, so that they need to figure this one out. So um, anyway, so I'm going to contact Sony because they kept blaming that. Oh well, you you haven't updated your Sony TV. So I've never had to update it. It just does it. So I'm going to contact Sony and say, okay, how do you update this little bugger? So and um, and anyway, so it's and I said, but everything else works on it. Well, it's because we're so new. All those other apps are old. A great excuse. Mm-hmm. It's not okay, but it's a great excuse. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, very frustrating. So, anyway. Oh, and the other thing. I don't know if this is a Disney Plus thing or just this one guy, but he, everything when he says goodbye or when, and he did send me my, the, the, the um, service ticket number um, in an email. And he, he's like, he told me, may the force be with you. You know, at the end, and I thought, is this like your way of, you know, saying something else uh, to me? <laughs> and then, and then in the email message after he sent me the the ticket number, he writes Hakuna Matata. Thought, okay, you need to stop this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I... This is a little too precious. God yeah. bless your patience. <laughs> so, well, I think he's really saying something else to me, but um, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. you're a better man than many other people (laughs) so oh well anyway um oh i got my ticket for the pacific northwest mouse meet on july 11th in linwood washington so they have not announced who the guests will be but if, if go back and listen to the show that we did on it or 
I think we did a couple of episodes on it. And it was a really terrific event. And um, t- I believe by the time this show goes up, tickets will be on sale. Uh, they go on sale to the general public February 1st. Um, and then once you go the first time, you will be able to buy your tickets in advance. So that's why I already have mine. So um, we'll have a link in our show notes to their website so that if you're interested in going, um, you can head up there. Just to keep in mind that sometimes they have an event on, on the next day. So you might want to adjust your travel plans accordingly. They don't always, but they did last time, last year. That, and I was very happy I went to it. But if I had had a morning flight on Sunday, I would have missed it. So um, good to know. So keep that in mind. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes that event is a separate ticketed event. And then Friday night, just to let you know, again, so you can plan your flights in for um, January, July 10th, usually D23 hosts an event Friday night, and then the Pacific Northwest Mouse Meet will, will host an event immediately after. And the D23 event is a separate ticketed item that you have to get through the D23 um, site itself. So it's for D23 members. Huh. So, so anyway, that's everything that I learned last year. So there's some <laughs> some hints for you. So I'm no guarantee that's how it's running this year, but um, I just don't want our listeners to to miss out on anything yeah. if you decide to go. And speaking of events, I'll be at the Walt Disney Family Museum on Friday, January 31st. Uh, they're doing a program about the animated shorts that are nominated for an Academy Award, and they're having a, a I don't know if he's a if he's a critic, film historian, but everybody says he's fabulous, and I didn't write down his name. And so he's going he's gonna to show them all and then talk about them all, how they were made and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So that should be interesting. Yeah. So I think that'll be fun. It's the evening of, of January 31st. And then on Saturday, February 1st, I am going to um, be at the museum for a program about the making of Frozen 2. So I'm really looking forward to hearing that. And so if you're there, be sure to say hello. So um, anyway. I think Rhino's going to go to that as well. Really? He's in San Francisco? He's going all the way just so he can hear about the making of Frozen 2. Are you kidding me? I am. Yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He hates Frozen 2 more than anything else in the world. Well, that's what I I remembered him saying, how he thought Elsa was like the most selfish character Disney ever created, or selfish heroine, who only thinks about herself. I I remember those discussions. (laughs) I I think Frozen 2 hurt him before, years before it came out. It just, it damaged him, so. Well, I had a free pass at one of our local theaters, because, you know, you get enough points and then you get a free ticket so i used it to see frozen 2 again and um in preparation for this so i um i enjoyed it even more the second time that makes me happy to hear yeah i really liked it and it was fun seeing it in my own theater because by the time i went everybody had seen it Exactly. So there were a couple yep. of adults swaying in the back. And then there were a couple, I think there must have been a little birthday party, and they sat in the front row, which I don't know why. It was a bunch of little girls. And and everybody left. I thought, don't any of you know, stay to the end of the credits? 
But, um, I don't think the average person does. So. Yeah, yeah, but anyway, no, I, I had an even more of an appreciation for it this time around. I really, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So. Good. And actually, it's one of the few times where I sort of hope there's a Frozen 3. I would like to see if Anna and Kristoff have, have kids and... You know, hopefully they won't be in peril, but I realize they have to be. Yeah, I, uh, I would like uh, to see a time jump, like go yeah. 10 years later. Yeah. And... Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't mind that because they, they seem to be doing a good job with this franchise. Yep, so. yep. Well, in our last episode, Craig and I continued our Epcot series with a look at the design and construction of the Universe of Energy Pavilion in Future World. And this week, we will continue our exploration of the pavilion with detailed looks at the attractions hosted by the Universe of Energy and the Energy Exchange in the Communicore East. We're walking up the pathway, and when we enter the building, we go through one of the sets of double sliding glass doors, and we'll face a long-tiled wall called the Thermal Mosaic. This presents a thermal image of the sun, with the Earth depicted in the correct proportion, sort of a tiny blue dot on the right side of the mural. And this mural was designed to immediately convey the idea of the immense power of the sun. There were also embedded glass block tiles behind which was an illuminated pre-show countdown timer so guests would know when the next show was to begin. Talk about impressive as soon as you walk in the door. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was beautiful. And and it, when you looked at it, it, it took a little while to sink in what you were seeing. Again, you know, as we talked about last week, where the facade, again, it, maybe it didn't immediately register what, you know, what it all mm-hmm. represented with the radiating energy. And I, I think it was the same way with this mural. But it was it was a beautiful mural that, that I think was... A good way of letting you know that there, there there was an epicness to what was to come. Completely agree with you. Now, the pre-show theater accommodated 500 guests and contained a 90-foot by 100-foot screen made up of 100 rotating 3.5-foot triangular panels. And each panel had an alternating white and black side that would rotate to show any of these sides, or it could go to an angled position. The pre-show film called Kinetic Mosaic was created by Czech artist and director Emil Radek. As the film began, the individual panels would begin to rotate and spin individually to match the projected images, creating an intricate mosaic. Each panel had its own microprocessor to control its movement. Over a billion combinations of screen elements were possible. The continuous screen effect was created by running five 35 millimeter films in unison. And the attraction was narrated by Vic Perrin, who was also the narrator for Spaceship Earth. Several types of energy harnessed by humanity were displayed on the turning cubes, including nuclear, electrical, mechanical, or motion, heat, light, wind, water, and fossil fuels. And the pre-show's main theme was that energy is never destroyed, 
nor is new energy created, but energy is perceived in different forms. The song Energy You Make the World Go Round was heard at the end of the eight-minute show. And as the song ended, the lights had come up and the doors underneath the screen would allow guests to enter Theater One. Words cannot describe how amazing these this this radox screen was the kinetic yeah. mosaic yeah and it's and unfortunately it's another one of those uh it's another one of those things where video you know you can get an idea of what was happening from it mm-hmm. and uh as we recommended uh last week uh during the plugs uh portion of what we sourced and stuff for the episode you mentioned uh martin's uh martin's ultimate tribute to universe mm-hmm. of energy and he has just a, a spectacular look at, at this the kinetic mosaic show and you can see how it's all happening perfectly and vividly in this video but it, it's like but to be in a room and see it happening is just a complete it, like a complete different experience than being able to see it and watch it on video. You can tell that just from watching it. Like oh, something yeah. that, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I. It's one of those moments where you wish you could get in a time machine and go back for sure. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, when I saw this, I was blown away. This was so amazing. So uh, With, you know, Carol and I saw it on our honeymoon. And I I, I couldn't believe it, you know, and, you know, and then, you know, later on when I, you know, became a historian for the Diz and, you know, I start researching this stuff and then I just find out what went into it to create it. it, it, I'm even more blown away again, as we talked about last week. And then and then keeping in mind, this is the late 70s today. Having a microprocessor in in each little panel that isn't a big deal to us. Mm. Back then, that was huge. That that was just technology never before used. You know, I, yeah. I, it's just amazing. Yeah, that's uh, and it's one of those things that I, you know, my my first trip to Walt Disney World once we started visiting regularly was 1992. So I'm not even I'm not even sure when. Yeah, you know, the last time everything was working with this pre-show and such, I don't know if I ever had the chance to see it. I don't, I can't uh, like watching it on a video. I have no recollection of it. But uh, boy, boy, do I wish I, I could remember seeing this or had the chance to see it. Yeah, yeah. So now, so guests would enter theater one, and it, and that's where you see the large um, traveling theater vehicles we talked about last week in a six pack configuration with a pair of ramps from the rear doors that allow them to enter. Now, most guests won't know that they're sitting atop a large air powered turntable. So after being seated, guests would be looking at a large shimmering theatrical curtain. And and everyone assumed this curtain would open and the show would begin on a fairly small screen compared to the room size. They most likely didn't turn around as they entered the theater to see a 32-foot by 155-foot projection screen behind them. So as the theater lights lowered, the turntable inflated and rotated the ride vehicles around 180 degrees to face the large main screen. 
Guests would then watch a four-and-a-half-minute animated film, The Energy Creation Story, directed by Disney animator Jack Boyd. The size of the screen demanded scrupulous inking and painting drawing techniques that had all but disappeared from the animation industry. A multi-plane camera invented by Ub Iwerks had to be taken out of storage after 25 years and asked to do things it had never done before by an animation crew of 50. As a standard with other Epcot Center films, it was projected at 30 frames per second rather than the standard 24 frames per second to eliminate projection flutter. Now, the film depicted the dawn of life on Earth and how primeval sea life and plant life form and die. The organisms sink down into the Earth, and after millions of years' worth of heat and pressure, they are turned into fossil fuels. The sea life becomes oil and gas, whilst the plant life becomes peat, then coal. Dinosaurs and volcanoes are then seen in the film, giving guests a preview of the next part of the ride, the primeval world. And the animation uh, from from this this pre-show, I mean, it definitely is animation of that time period, like the... Mm-hmm the late 70s early 80s there is an eeriness to it uh Mm -hmm. it's not you know it's not uh, it's not fluffy happy-go-lucky disney animation there's there's a harshness and a seriousness to it that you know it's it's almost like i kind of get chills watching it like Mm -hmm. it's it paints an environment in in a very very uh unique way so uh very uh, one of those one one of those uh, things that I think actually using the the medium of animation actually helped it kind of step up and be be different and be be unique. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I agree. I, again, a, a, another extraordinary job. Mm-hmm. So, at the conclusion of the film, the airbags of the turntable under the ride vehicles would once again inflate and turn the vehicles 90 degrees to the left and face the side wall of the theater. The curtain covering this wall would partially rise up whilst a huge hydraulic door lowered into the ground to reveal the primeval world diorama. As the vehicles entered, they they would separate and the large hydraulic door would rise up and seal off the diorama area from theater one so no lighter sound could enter the turntable at theater one would reset so the ride vehicles ending their journey could enter from the opposite side conclude and the guests disembark so there were two you know journeys going on you know simultaneously in the theater This design of the primeval world diorama is meant to show nearly 300 million years of prehistory in a seven-minute ride-through. It begins in the Carboniferous period with a foggy, shallow pond filled with the family of Aptosaurus. And one casually leans forward to check out the guests, whilst the others calmly munch on their greens. And a few Edaphosaurus are on the right. As the front vehicle turns a sharp left, because this is where the vehicles are splitting up, 
Um, guests jump 100 million years into the early Jurassic period. A small waterfall and bathing trachodons are to the left, and a stegosaurus and allosaurus fight it out on a rocky outcropping straight ahead. But due to the geologic activity, the rocks and boulders become unstable as guests enter the Cretaceous period. A family of Ornithomimus, I I don't know how you say their, I had trouble with them last week too, (laughs) are watching helplessly as one of their members is trapped in a boiling mud pit. A large snake-like Elasmosaurus lashes out at a tidal pool of guests. Numerous pterodon that were perched around an erupting volcano, complete with flowing lava and realistic volcano smell, are flying overhead. The lava erupted by the volcano was actually a goo, sort of similar to hair gel, and the lighting gave it the lava color. A volcanic eruption threatened to engulf the entire scene as the vehicles entered a cavern and the base of the volcano into a cloud of mist. And that's where they enter Theater 2 and regroup into their six-pack configuration. And this theater was the Epcot Energy Information Center, where guests viewed television monitors and three giant illuminated glass maps of the world showing energy in different forms from around the world in a pseudo-monitoring station setup. In reality, this was an elaborate way to disguise the Theater 2 operations console as part of the set. As the hydraulic door rose up and closed behind the ride vehicles to seal off the diorama, a giant projection screen on the left would lower, and two others would lower behind guests covering the hydraulic doors, forming a large wraparound screen measuring 210 feet wide and 30 feet high. The vehicles would then rotate to face the screens. A 12-minute, 70-millimeter live-action film took them on an in-depth look at humanity's quest for various current and future energy resources around the world. To shoot a film of this magnitude, several technical difficulties had to be resolved. First, Disney designed a custom rig for this screen size. The elements also had to be conquered. For example, the camera rig would freeze in the extreme cold of the North Sea where the crew went to film an offshore oil platform. So the crew had to lug the equipment, which weighed more than 500 pounds, indoors to thaw it out before filming could continue. And the film concluded with a space shuttle launch in which the three screens rose up, allowing the ride vehicles to move underneath them and back into Theater yeah. One. Which is a very cool effect. Just, it is. Yeah. And yeah. Like, gosh, I, as, as a person who suffers for their, their art of making videos and stuff, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think I would like to be lugging around more than five hundred pounds of equipment in the North Sea to an oil platform. That's that's a next level uh, type of of work. That I, I don't know if I'm cut out for that. But I'm glad that they were. <laughs> and, I, and then when I just, I'm just always amazed by the elaborateness of just how everything was staged yeah. in this. You know, it just. It just amazes me. Yeah, and staged, and then the effort that goes into producing these videos. Like, Mm -hmm. this is, you know, now 
nowadays it would just be okay let's just cgi everything let's just Mm -hmm. let's do it that way it's just it's it's a lost art form almost in a way with the effort that that went into these so uh just you know and it's sad sad that uh there can't be more like that out there yeah yeah i agree now back in theater one guests saw that it had been completely transformed for what they had seen previously. The large curtains around the room were drawn up to reveal sidewalls completely covered in mirrors. The apex screen at the front of the theater was now revealed to be a convex, half-cylindrical-shaped 35-millimeter projection screen, with the main 70-millimeter screen used during the introduction. The films created the effect of a full surround projection as it reflected off the mirrors so simple but so effective (laughs) i know but and again just like we talked about the radix screen the Mm. the, this you have to see this to just to just believe how again how epic this finale was yeah you know to this attraction yeah and just again so simple i mean mirrors it's literally that's that's carnival level uh, style but when it's placed in the hands of geniuses mm-hmm. what can you know there's no limits to to what you can do with it oh it's true well you know when we talked about the haunted mansion uh, way back in the day it would they used techniques and tricks that were a hundred years old yep. to create some of the most effective you know effects you know in that attraction so yeah yeah yeah, the the two minute film directed by David Moore depicted an ever evolving landscape of colorful laser like imagery. The various ways humanity has benefited from harnessing energy for its use. The screen at the theater's front acted as the source of energy, whilst the three giant screens on the rear wall acted as the environment that was being affected. It's a dramatic reprise of the concepts of energy that were depicted throughout the attraction. This was the largest computer animated film ever to be projected at the time. In a kinetic presentation set to music, images, computer line drawings, all glowing in radiant laser-like colors, they melt into new images and seem to engulf the guests. During the film, the ride vehicles rotated back to their starting positions for guests to disembark. And this spectacle, this was a spectacle, was accompanied by an upbeat song entitled Universe of Energy, written by Al Kasha and Joel Hershorn. At the song's conclusion, the curtains would fall and reveal guests were back to where they had started their journey. Automated doors would open to the rear left, allowing guests to exit the exhibit. From the exit, guests could follow a path that led directly to the energy exchange, an exhibit located in Communicore East. So are you more of a fan of universe of energy or energy you make the world go round? Hmm. I don't know. That's a really hard one. So I like them both. Hmm. So I, I, don't, I don't think I have a favorite. I, I, I like them both for where they 
for the story that they convey for where they're at in the attraction. Do you have a favorite? Oh, yeah. Uh, energy make the world go round. So mm-hmm. the the I mean first off it's a very short song. It's like it's like a minute and a half. It is. It's very yeah. but it's like the ending when it like just keeps repeating you make the world go round. It's like has the that 80 synth under it that just is like that is Epcot. <laughs> so uh I I yes. love listening to that. <clears throat> Yes, both songs are uh, are definitely of their era mm-hmm. in their style, true. but they were very effective. Yep. Okay, well, let's walk down the path to Communicore East and check out the Energy Exchange exhibit. Now, Communicore was located in two crescent-shaped buildings behind Spaceship Earth and opened in 1982 at the rest of Epcot Center. And CommuniCore stood for Community Core, hands-on experience with new innovations, along with new electronics were available here for guests to explore. And as you probably know, CommuniCore was rebuilt into Innoventions in 1994, which still featured hands-on experiences. So now the Energy Exchange was sponsored by Exxon, uh, who was also the sponsor of the Universe of Energy Pavilion. And the Communicore counterpart to the Universe of Energy, Energy Exchange, was accessible by walking down a ramp, circling a, mo- uh, a mobile of interlocking wheels and gears called Energy in Motion. Many machines, games, demonstrations, films, and hands-on areas were an energy exchange. And energy exchange was huge. I mean, it had the square footage of like people's homes. So, um, so there there was a lot here. So some of the exhibits included one on offshore drilling, drilling, and this was an, a giant model of a deep sea drilling platform. Um, and this dominated the demonstration area. There were also smaller platform examples. There was blowout preventer. An oil well blowout preventer was on display, along with details on how it prevents wasteful oil gushers. There was the oil shale exhibit. And so on display was a huge 30,000-pound chunk of oil shale containing 500 gallons of kerogene, the shale could provide enough oil to fuel one car for one year. Near the shale was a giant bucket from a power shovel and other drilling equipment. The coal locator was a large series of rings, and each ring was lit with different colors to represent which countries have the most coal. The energy facility models were scale models of energy facilities along with equipment parts used in those facilities. Then there was the video bicycle, and this um, this bicycle-like pedaling machine would allow guests to feel how much energy it takes to make a gallon of gas. It would take seven days' worth of pedaling to produce a gallon of gas. Huh. <laughs> The, the, the driving machine was a graphical demonstration that showed guests how the miles per gallon in cars varies depending on a number of factors, including air conditioning and power steering. The 100-watt bulb demonstration allowed guests to turn a crank to allow the bulb to glow brightly. One week of turning the crank at this rate would equal $1 worth of electricity. So you could. I wonder if you could do that and pedal at the same time. So you could get <laughs> gas and electricity. Uh, that's a ideal world that we all should live in. 
Photovoltaic cells would uh, stop moving if guests placed their hands between the cells and the light source in this demonstration. And there were energy information terminals. And these touchscreen terminals allowed guests to ask questions and then receive answers via short video presentations. So again, that was that was uh, you know m- sort of mind blowing for its day. Oh yeah, absolutely. So it's uh, you know and it, it's stuff that you just will not ever find in an Epcot park. Moving on in the future, so oh, it's no. uh, definitely a, a snapshot of what it was like back in that time. And you know, I I wish there was still a place for for that in in Epcot, but. Uh, you know, I, I think slowly we'll start seeing a lot of a- anything like that make its way out. Like, you know, it, uh, Mission Space still has a little bit of interactivity as you exit that attraction. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's uh, that's going to go away with time. Once uh, Spaceship Earth goes through its renovation, I feel like that's going to lose its little bit of interactivity at the end. So uh, it's uh, definitely one of the the sadder parts with the changes happening to Epcot. Yeah, yeah. But, but you know, we can sing along with Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. I forgot about that. <laughs> All right. Well, <clears throat> for 14 years, the universe of energy did not receive any major modifications. By the early 1990s, though, the information being shared in the pavilion was becoming outdated and inaccurate. To make matters worse, guests began to complain about the overly serious tone of the attraction. And additionally, Exxon expressed a desire for a new attraction in the universe of energy in celebration of the pavilion's 15th anniversary. Since Disney had experienced success with using humor in nearby pavilions to deliver their message, Imagineers decided humor and satire would be the best approach for the universe of energy, whilst keeping the original attraction's basic structure and the primeval world diorama. So Imagineers pitched a new attraction idea in and that was titled Ellen's Energy Crisis, which would take the format of a game show and star Ellen DeGeneres. And at the time that the attraction was being developed, DeGeneres had a popular Emmy-nominated show on ABC, which Disney was in the process of purchasing. On January 21, 1996, the attraction closed for a major refurbishment that would include the addition of Ellen DeGeneres and Bill Nye the Science Guy, along with appearances by Jeopardy! game show host Alex Trebek and actress Jamie Lee Curtis. Initially planned to take a futuristic perspective, Ellen's energy crisis would be based on a completely new storyline. This meant an updated pre-show, new films for the attraction theaters throughout, and an overhaul of the existing diorama scenes. So, so Craig, what are your thoughts about the trend of using Disney celebrity, Disney using celebrities in its attractions? Um, you know, it, it definitely was was interesting at the time. I don't know if I necessarily have a problem with it when it was utilized properly and we'll get we'll get into ellen's energy adventure a little bit more here obviously i feel like it's one of the uh one one of the actual better uses of kind of 
pushing these two worlds together and then you have other examples like uh one day we're gonna make it into mgm studios and disney's hollywood studios and and we'll get to the attractions there and eventually we'll come around to sounds dangerous with drew carey and (laughs) that is an example of uh, one of the worst collaborations and that comes from a person whose whose family all grew up just kind of like far suburbs of of cleveland and so i have that that love of drew carey and watched a show all the time but uh you know that's when it came to drew carey and an attraction together that did not work and you know the trend still continues to this day when they can they can promote that synergy of of uh of keeping everything together i mean it's it it can work um another great example is the some of the shows that happen in budan bakery at disney california adventure like with colin mockery uh everyone's Mm -hmm. favorite comedian from who wants uh, i almost said who wants to be a millionaire (laughs) whose line is it anyways (laughs) so it's just you know it's definitely that was a weird uh period where they definitely were uh putting a lot more effort into that synergy so i'm i'm okay with it when it worked but when it didn't work no it was not not i i don't like it i don't (laughs) like it i think it's cheesy (laughs) and the problem is we know the celebrities so well that when they when they don't update these attractions after a while and we know what the celebrities look like after 15 years it 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 ages and dates the attraction even more yeah, so I'd rather they had people we didn't know, and so that we have no idea that you know they actually have a lot more lines in their face and their hair is gray, uh, you know, in in real life than than when they were in that, yeah. you know, filming that attraction. Yeah. I'm I'm okay with it as or long as the, or, or in worst case scenario they're dead. Yeah, it's, uh, that's what I was just about to say. As long as the celebrity's not dead, even if it's like the mm-hmm. a massive change in age and outdatedness, yeah, it's unfortunately we, we live in a world now where Disney does not update to the level that they should, and so it's mm-hmm. going to happen. But it's uh, when it's someone who's already dead, like the last big case of this was when uh, Robert Osborne did the pre-show for a Great Movie Ride before that shut down, and. He was mm-hmm. dead for I want to it was close to a year before you know that that great movie ride shut its doors and stuff and that was just kind of awkward. So knowing that you're going in to have it presented by a man who's no longer around, so uh, it's it, yeah when when the celebrity is dead, he was, not great. <laughs> yeah, he was he was talking to us from that great balcony in the sky. Yes, how beautiful. <laughs> Yes, thank you. Well, the summer of 1996 saw many changes come to Future World East. The World of Motion Pavilion also closed in January 1996 to make way for a test track, and Horizons was not operating consistently due to alleged structural issues with the pavilion. Due to problems with the filming and editing of the new films for the universe of energy attraction, Disney concluded the pavilion would not be ready to reopen for the summer season. As a result, that side of Future World would only have the wonders of life open for the summer peak season. So, the decision was made to reopen Universe of Energy, even though the renovations and preparation for the new show were not complete. 
With many of the attraction's original components unusable or removed altogether, a hybrid version of the original universe of energy and the unfinished Ellen's Energy Crisis opened on June 1st, 1996. As a result, the experience was somewhat disconnected. The original pre-show was still used. However, the unique Radix screens were no longer in place. The primeval world diorama... Many changes had already been made, including the reprogramming of the large Elasmosaurus. Whilst the Ellen animatronic that the creature would now be attacking had been installed, the new storyline was not yet in place. Imagineers solved this problem by hiding the Ellen animatronic figure with a temporary rock feature, so the Elasmosaurus appeared to be attacking rocks. As a result, (laughs) so as guests traveled to the second theater where screens once showed different energy sources and progress around the world, newly recorded audio was used to distract guests from the fact that they were essentially in a dark room. This audio welcomed guests back from the past and explained a bit about the electrical systems used to power the attraction. The large K... NRG radio tower display had been installed but hidden using large curtains in this space. The last obvious occurrence of this disconnected experience was back in Theater One, where the final film had previously taken advantage of mirrored walls to create an impressive effect. With these walls removed and the new smaller television screen installed, in place of the original floor-to-ceiling screens, the finale felt less epic. That's a good way to put it. I mean, <laughs> up through the end, it definitely uh, less epic, and that comes with uh, not even being able to remember what was what was there before. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I would have loved to have seen this version. Just or it's it just sounds dreadful. Oh yeah, no, it's <laughs> like I. I can't think of anything that has opened sounding like this much of a mess. Yes, attractions open up and they have technical issues and uh, downtimes and such, but like this is a next level. Like this is something that should not have seen the light of day, but it is also yeah. insane to think of a time that on that side of Future World that only wonders of life was open. Like I know. What it, <laughs> you know, and as it, you know, right around when Universe of Energy closed, Wonders of Life is the only building that wasn't working. So, uh, kind of an ironic twist of it all there. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it, has, it just has a pathetic feel to it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. But, but because, and this only happened because uh, the back in California, they were having problems with the films. So. Mm-hmm. When the peak summer season was over, the Universe of Energy closed on September 1st, 1996, to complete its refurbishment. The attraction reopened on September 15th as Ellen's Energy Crisis. The attraction operated for two weeks as Imagineers continued to make tweaks and edits to the films and renamed it Ellen's Energy Adventure before its grand opening on October 1st, 1996. Wonder why? Like, is does crisis add in a level of unnecessary fear? <laughs> well, yeah, and I, we were having. I think. A, I think there was a problem too with an oil 
crisis at the time. Of course. An energy crisis at the time. <laughs> and, uh, and this was a very last-minute change also. Yeah. Now, the new Ellen's Energy Adventure attraction featured four new films and retained an updated Primeval World diorama scene. Ellen's Energy Adventure followed the story of Ellen as she learned about the history and future of energy. Besides installing the new attraction, the 1996 refurbishment also changed the exterior of the pavilion. New rainbow colors replaced the original red, orange, and yellow color scheme. The mosaic tiles were also removed from the exterior side walls. Finally, the reflecting pools located on both sides of the pavilion were filled in, and new dinosaur topiaries were added. In the pre-show, the Imagineers had originally intended to use the Radix screens, but changes to the Ellen script had them replaced with five new stretch screens covering the same space. The audio system was completely replaced and the projectors upgraded. New lighting was added to illuminate the screens and a wash of color between shows since they could no longer turn to black when not in use. A small stage was added so cast members could deliver their spiels and introduce the show. The new pre-show told the story of Ellen as she fell asleep on her couch watching her college rival Judy, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, as a contestant on Jeopardy. Ellen has a dream sequence in which she is a Jeopardy contestant against Judy and Albert Einstein. All of the questions are about energy and Ellen is losing badly. Ellen takes control of her dream and enlists her neighbor, Bill Nye the Science Guy, to help her with the second round of the game. Bill tells Ellen he will have to start at the beginning, and the pre-show doors open into Theater One, where the dream continues. In Theater One, navy blue curtains have replaced the original sparkling curtains. The ride vehicles follow the same movement and turn to face the large screens. New subwoofers under the screens create a near-deafening experience as the Big Bang creates the universe on screen. This takes Ellen and Bill to the prehistoric era in the same way the vehicles move to the diorama in the original show. New foliage was added to the diorama to make it more lush and less rocky than the original. Based on new theories about the appearances of the dinosaurs, the color of their skins were changed from a deep green, brown, and gray colors to bright shades of green, orange, blue, and yellow. A water-misting sneeze effect was added to the brontosaurus, who overhangs the vehicle path. The ornithomimus, whatever, who had been drowning in the original version, now spits water at passing vehicles as he calmly sits in a pool of water. The damp earth and volcano scents were no longer present because the smellitzers were now deactivated. The biggest change was the addition of an Ellen audio-animatronic figure who gets into a disagreement with an elasmosaurus this million-dollar third-generation animatron looked very little like Ms. DeGeneres, but had extremely lifelike movements. Ellen's and Bill Nye's voices were heard, as if they were in the dinosaur area with the guests. Guests all noticed there were all-new audio tracks for the dinosaur sound effects, and, a mu- and there was a new musical score. 
In Theater 2, the Epcot Energy Information Center is completely gone. The futuristic-looking operations console was hidden by a plywood panel painted black. A twinkling light effect was added as the ride vehicles transitioned into the theater. As the vehicles regrouped, a twinkling light pool onto the radio tower broadcast from the K-Energy, K-N-R-G, news radio from the Ice Age. It then transitions to a film in which Bill Nye takes Ellen on a journey to locations of various energy sources. All this information enables Ellen to beat Judy in double jeopardy. The film ends with final jeopardy as the screen rises. The game shows iconic jingle plays and the ride vehicles move back into Theater One for the finale. The three main screens of Theater One continued the final Jeopardy sequence. The half-cylindrical apex screen at the front of the theater was demolished during the renovation and replaced with a new television-shaped movie screen. Black soundproofing materials have replaced the mirrored walls. The vehicles turned to face the smaller screen and guests witnessed Ellen's conquest of her nemesis, Judy. The show ran 45 minutes, as did the original version. The attraction received very few changes until 2001 when the pavilion's sponsor Exxon merged with Mobile Oil and became ExxonMobil. The signage within the pavilion was changed to reflect the new corporate sponsor's name. In the post-show area, Save the Tiger campaign kiosks were added to support ExxonMobil's conservation efforts. In March 2004, ExxonMobil withdrew their sponsorship of the pavilion. All references to the company were removed. The corporate lounge, including VIP viewing areas overlooking the diorama, were closed. In late 2008, the pavilion closed once again. There were no changes to the show itself when it reopened in 2009, but the attraction received some much-needed upgrades, including a new sound system, as well as many cleanups and fixes. The original color of the pavilion's exterior was restored, and the dinosaur topiaries removed. Over time, the motion of the Elasmosaurus was reduced. The Ellen animatronic was both one of the most expensive and and the most expensive to build, as well as one of the most plagued with difficulty. With its constant technical problems, it was officially removed in late 2004, with the Elasmosaurus soon to follow. I think they they put in a few little dinosaurs to replace them. Mm -hmm. On July 15th, 2017, at the D23 Expo, it was announced that the Energy Pavilion would close on August 13th, 2017, and replaced by a new Guardians of the Galaxy e-ticket attraction. During its final ride, the moving theater car seemingly experienced a malfunction, resulting in guests being evacuated from the attraction. Though appearing to be unplanned, guests were not evacuated as would typically be done. Instead, guests were allowed to roam the diorama slowly, taking photos and getting up close and personal with the scenes. It was a not easily forgotten once-in-a-lifetime experience of what had once been a groundbreaking attraction that had featured film and show techniques never before attempted. 
Yeah, I'm still upset that I didn't get to be on that that final ride because I, if I remember correctly, I was over at I was over at Great Movie Ride because mm-hmm. Kylie had to work that day, and so I got us a fast pass for Great Movie Ride kind of later on in the day, so she would have a chance to do it one last time. And and my sister kept saying like, okay, well, I think I'm going to go to to Universe of Energy to try to get on the last ride and sure enough she did and she was one of the ones who got to walk through it as after the the malfunction and take all those photos and like i just and you know it's of course she only had like a cell phone camera and i'm like i just uh, if only i could have been there with my good camera and been able to to get those photos and videos of that that would have just been been something else but it definitely a a hilarious way for that attraction to close down after yeah, really. after its entire history and I mean it's it, it is one of those true things that that is such a way for it to go out that people will not forget you know if it would have been that entire 45 minute attraction that everyone knew and did over and over again then it would have just it would have been that last ride, but because it got to go out in the way it did, like that's uh, something special. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember the last time that Cal and I wrote it, it so much of it wasn't working anymore. Yeah. Uh, that it was sad actually. And, um, yeah. So now how, how did you like Ellen's energy adventure compared to the original universe of energy? Yeah. Because I don't, really remember the original it's you know at least the movies i i can't really speak to it but i i never had a problem with ellen's energy adventure i did it actually pretty often um and you know it was it was definitely uh one of those ones that i hated to admit how much i love it so like when it closed down and they released the merchandise for its its final day you know that's that's the merchandise i was excited about was was the universe of energy stuff and uh, i i can honestly say that of i i only have one disney cast member costume in my possession uh that 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 i currently have with me and that is an uh, ellen's energy adventure uh jacket so it's it's actually an attraction that even though i didn't work there even though it's it seems like an oddball one to have such a connection with it's always something that i just enjoyed and i think it's because you know i think a lot of it's because of the immersiveness of the 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 going back in time to the time of the dinosaurs and riding through there because you know well while seeing primeval world on the disneyland railroad is is always exciting that's that's a glimpse of it and then on ellen's energy adventure and universe of energy it took you into that world and you know that's that same thing in terms of groundbreaking they were trying to immerse you in that all the way back then and something that's still important to this day um so you know the fact that the that portion still remained through and you know it's there were funny moments in those videos and I can't I can't argue that while some of the references and the fact that Bill Nye kind of fell out of favor with the world there for a while uh, you know it's that went out of style but Ellen's humor didn't if anything it re-blossomed and it 
you know even though she started looking older it it still it still had that life form because she kind of reemerged with with her talk show and everything so it's something that i i truly did enjoy up to the end i understand why people didn't like it i know 45 minutes is a long time to be on an attraction but it had humor it it was still it was still wondrous in some sections and uh, we we need more attractions like that that are long and and feel like there's a payoff for the entire total attraction mm-hmm. time. Yeah, I wasn't as much of a fan of Ellen's Energy Adventure. I uh, I liked all of it except the the Jeopardy show parts. I didn't care for it at all. When I mm-hmm. when I'd see that and remember the Radix screens, I thought this is just sad. Mm-hmm. It, it just felt like a the whole I don't know what I call the dumbing down of Epcot. As it becomes uh, Magic Kingdom 2.0, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, it, so I, I, I wasn't a fan. Of, I wrote it because I liked all the other parts mm-hmm. to it, especially like you were talking about the Primeval World diorama. But um, yeah, so it, it, to me, I just felt that it, it's such a, a grand attraction just sort of limped out at the end yeah. in the last, the final years. So. Well, its replacement attraction, Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind, will feature what the theme park is calling an Omnicoaster ride system, which allows the individual train cabs to rotate 360 degrees and even execute the first reverse launch performed on a Disney coaster, according to the Disney Parks blog. It will be one of the longest enclosed indoor roller coasters in the world. Guests will reportedly begin the ride in a Galaxarium or a planetarium like exhibition where they will be treated to a presentation on the formation of the galaxy as well as Xandar a fictional planet featured in the Guardians of the Galaxy films guests will be invited to learn more about the treasures Xandar has to share till the moment when the Guardians of the Galaxy arrive and adventures across the cosmos ensue Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind is scheduled to open in 2021 to coincide with Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary celebrations so Craig how is this attraction coming along so I know you were at Epcot um, yeah, last uh, weekend. Unfortunately, there's there's not a lot to really report on it right now. So it, there, when the building, the actual building that's housing most of the roller coaster portion, it when that was still uh, wide open and nice, like you could see a lot of what was going on there. It was very exciting. And then as they closed up that building and uh, kind of moved moved away from uh, that portion and kind of refocused on the main attraction building it a lot of it has been kept hidden and you know like i'm glad one of the things that broke my heart for the longest time was when they gutted the building and you could completely see through it from front to back Mm -hmm. and right out like that just that made me sick looking through like everything just gone and so the fact that that's not a a factor anymore is is 
definitely a, a plus but there's still there's still clearly a lot of uh, a lot of work to be done on the exterior and i can only imagine what's going on in the interior you know we're getting we're getting closer to 2021 but uh, there's still a lot of time in between now and then and uh, it's i i don't foresee any uh, any random like hey guess what it's going to be ready in in 2020 i don't see anything like that being even a potential to happen so uh it's it, not a lot of not a lot of visible progress but uh i'm i i hope that in the next couple of months we start getting some regular updates on it because it's uh it's definitely definitely exciting so even though it doesn't fit in with the the culture of epcot and doesn't make a lot of sense it's it's definitely going to to it's going to revolutionize a lot of Epcot by having well, it in there. That's true. <laughs> and I'm sure majority of people think it's for the best. I, I'm not amongst those people, but um, I have a feeling this is an attraction I won't be able to ride. So, yeah, anyway, and there will be a lot of I think people. It will make me a little too sick. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's, you know, that's a trend that Disney that's. Not, I don't want to say stopped caring about because they're still building attractions that the entire family can do and, and good for many ages. But uh, you know they're not they're not as as concerned about making everything as family friendly as they once were. So it's a big step by them. But uh, then also, of course, breaking breaking the entire thematic world of of Epcot. But I'm you know I'm. Ultimately, yeah, I don't, I don't agree with it in the long run, but I agree that Epcot needed something to to shift dramatically. Mm-hmm. And you know, I in another twenty years, it's us that remember Epcot as it once was. I think we're definitely going to be in the minority versus the kids who are growing up loving Epcot and seeing it in the form that it's going to be. So it's just one of those. Uh, one of those stark realizations where uh, you're you're not you're no longer Disney's main concern, and they're mm-hmm. looking towards the future generation, and it's a bitter pill to swallow. It is. It is. Well, speaking of, speaking of looking in the past, though, <laughs> as well as the future, it's time for us to look at this week in Disney history. Well, Craig, the designers of the original pavilions asked fundamental questions of the experiences they created. Did you have fun and did you take something away from it? So um, did both versions of this attraction, Universe of Energy, answer these questions for you? How did they answer them? I mean, I I can definitely say from the second version that uh, I... I'm in the minority of people that I would say I would have fun. Uh, did I take away anything from it? Um, you know what? I don't. I don't know. Actually, in in the long run, because uh, it's there was there wasn't really scare tactics in in the Ellen version of Universe of Energy, uh, despite the one time uh, crisis in the name. But uh, <laughs> at the same time, too, it. It felt like a lot of the information after a couple of years of it being out, it was a lot of general knowledge, like learning about wind power and and water power and everything. Like it's it's 
that's not really anything that isn't common knowledge. So maybe I didn't take away something from it, but I can honestly say uh, by watching through the original ones and trying to pull out any memory of it, I, I can fully say I would have, I probably would not have had fun in that one as a kid, as an adult, I would have, but I think I definitely would have taken something away from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that uh, the big difference for me between the two pavilions was the first one left me feeling inspired, you know, and, and hopeful. And the second one just thought, okay, it's done. You know, I, I, I didn't leave Ellen's Energy Adventure feeling inspired and, you know, motivated to do something. And, and the first one did leave me that way when I saw it. And, it, and, you know, again, with that that feeling that there was going to be a great, big, beautiful tomorrow, I think the first universe of energy left people with that. Ellen's energy adventure was just sort of a, a, a romp, a 45-minute romp. Yeah, and, you know, you know not even – it. A lot could have happened by just having that little scare tactic. Not that I'm promoting that Disney should ever do that, but if it would have been like, okay, well – now it's on your hands to go out there and and find ways to use clean, renewable energy. And if you don't, bad things are going to happen. So have a good day. Like, it's, wouldn't want to see that. But, yeah, you probably would have left with a little bit more inspiration to get out there and do something if, if that would have been the case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe they, maybe they should have redone it and called it Ellen's Climate Crisis. <laughs> you know what? It's that definitely could have been explored. I think. I think there is a. I think that this attraction could still be brought back from the grave, and with a couple small little updates here and there, it could. Uh, it could be something powerful. Well, now that we've taken a ride through the universe of energy, we are going to take a ride through this week in Disney history. <laughs> Well, all right, Craig, we are, I just can't believe we're already a month into the new year. We are here for February 2nd. It's going fast. It's going very it fast. Is. It is. And again, you know, this is definitely awards and Super Bowl <laughs> season because, oh gosh, there's so much tied around those. And I'm really, I'm really trying to avoid those because it's just so obscure. But, um, Anyway, but let's go look at February 2nd. There are, there are some film references, though, in here. Um, legendary singer and actor Maurice Chevalier makes his last appearance before a camera in a Walt Disney film released on February 2nd, 1967. What is the name of the film? I have no idea. It, it stars Dean Jones, if that helps. It, it does not. No, I honestly did not know that uh, Maurice Chevalier was ever in a live-action Disney movie. Oh, gosh, and you must not have seen this. This is, this is the era when Disney was fixated on monkeys, because this is the comedy Monkeys Go Home. Because remember they had a time where there were monkeys and everything, the monkey's uncle. The monkey. Anyway. Yes, and I have not seen it, no. <laughs> oh, Monkeys Go Home. Oh, okay, it's worth watching. Um, Hank, who's played by Dean Jones, learns he is the heir to a crumbling French olive farm, so he packs his bags and heads for Europe. On his arrival, the kindly priest, Father Sylvain, who is Maurice Chevalier, and his maid, oh, and 
wait till you hear who his mate is, Yvette Mimou. Mimou? Mimou? Is that how you say your name? Convince him that getting the property up and running is going to take quite a bit of work. Feeling inspired, Hank decides to use four mischievous chimps as helping hands. Because I guess the French countryside is just crawling with chimps. <laughs> and although he would contribute his voice to the animated The Aristocats, Monkeys Go Home would be Maurice Chevalier's last appearance before a camera. Hmm. I'll isn't have to watch that, it. Isn't that interesting? I, I'm trying to figure out if that was a high or a low for him. <laughs> this is his last appearance. I mean, I, I, I enjoy his music, so I'm sure I'd enjoy his that as his last movie too. Yeah, he was he was friends with Walt, so um, I mean, he came out of retirement for Walt. Hmm. So anyway, okay, February third. Walt Disney's seventh animated and live-action feature film is released in the United States on February 3rd, 1945. What is the name of the film? Okay, let me count my head here. I I have a hint for you if you need it. Hmm. Um... I think if I'm counting correctly, I think it's I think it's three caballeros. You're absolutely right. Very good. And because I know this is one of your favorite films, so that's why I threw it in here. Yeah, and the film stars Donald Duck, who's joined by old friend Jose Carioca, the cigar smoking parrot from Saludos Amigos, which is from nineteen forty three, representing Brazil, and later pistol packing rooster Panchito Pistoles, representing Mexico. It will earn two Academy Award nominations, though after a brief initial run, Walt will pull the film from general release due to press bad press reviews. And, um, now, now let's see them make this into a, a CG um, live action. I, I don't see this one becoming that. Honestly, I even though I love the fact that it and Saludos Amigos are both on Disney Plus, I could also understand if they both weren't on Disney Plus, <laughs> yes. uh, considering how on the fence they can be about stuff that could be deemed offensive. Yes, anyway, but I'm glad they are too. Okay, February 4th. On February 4th, 2005, a race car sponsored by Disney and Pixar takes part in the Rolex 24 Hours of Daytona, which is a motorsport event. It is the car's the car driver's last race as a professional. Who was the driver? I do know the answer to this one. It was Paul Newman. That's because right. Many Go people ahead. didn't know he was also he also raced among the many things he did in his career, from acting to to salad dressings and, and beyond. Yeah, and from what I understand in reading about him, his wife was very much against him racing. If I remember correctly, I can imagine because yeah. you know it's it's one thing even later in your life that it's dangerous, but. Uh, you know, it's back in the day. It, it, not that it's not dangerous now. It's just as dangerous as it's ever been. But you know, that's mm-hmm. nitty gritty, and um, you know, perfect, perfect example of racing is go back and if you haven't seen Ford versus Ferrari yet, uh, that's kind of gives you an idea about how racing was in the in the sixties mm-hmm. and going into the seventies era, and it's 
It's uh, it's intense and a great movie. One yeah. that I highly recommend. Yeah, I want to see it. I want to see it. Yeah, uh, Paul Newman was eighty years old when he raced in this. And so, um, yeah, um, he had and he had appeared in five previous Rolex twenty fours. He won the GTS one class and finished third overall in nineteen ninety five. And of course, we all know him as the voice of the nineteen fifty one Hudson Hornet in Cars, um, which would be released in two thousand and six. Um, okay, February fifth. An Imagineer artist and Disney legend passed away on February 5th, 2004, at the age of 95. He had been an employee of the Walt Disney Company for more than 60 years. One of his many accomplishments included being the official corporate portrait artist for Mickey Mouse. Who is this Disney legend? I'm going to go with John Hedge. Absolutely. That is correct. He began with the company as a story artist in 1939. And then Hench moved through the animation department doing everything, including backgrounds, layout, and art direction, effects animation, and special effects. And Walt Disney respected John Hench as one of the studio's most gifted artists and teamed him with Salvador Dali on the animated short Destino, which I discovered only a few days ago is on Disney+. Plus. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is a project begun in 1945, but was completed and released in 2003. Um, Hench won a special effects Oscar for his work in the 1955 film 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, before moving to Wed Enterprises to spend the rest of his career helping to design Disney theme parks all over the world. So... Uh, definitely a name all of us should know and remember. Um, uh, something fun that I uh, I just watched, I think it's been around for a couple of years, but it just popped up in mine, was that someone uh, put the the Time song by Pink Floyd from Dark Side of the Moon set to Destino. And, oh, really? Yeah, and it actually works really well. But huh. uh, it's so, if you like Destino, maybe maybe track that down on, on YouTube. Yeah. I will. And uh, I just came across something, a photo that showed 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was how um, some of it was filmed at the 20th Century Fox lot. Hmm. (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting little connection there. It it is, yeah. I mean, it's not, uh, even to this day, it's actually, most movies are filmed at whatever lots just have space that the other companies can rent out. So, but you know, back in the day when studios were even more strict yet, you wouldn't see that happening. You don't think it would happen as much at the very least, but Mm -hmm. that's cool. Cool little, cool little connection. I think it was that they had a big outdoor water, water. Yeah. Cause yeah, I had a mock up of, of the Nautilus there for some of the, you know, outdoor scenes yeah that, w- that would make sense i know that universal has you know they they have a water area and mm-hmm. the biggest one i've ever seen it's paramount has and still uses it to this day their entire water pit which is like you know it's a, it's a parking lot by day but if they need to use it for water scenes then no cars can park there and they just fill this thing up with water and it's it's cool once you start seeing it in movies because you can pinpoint like yep that's the Paramount one. <laughs> oh, interesting. Huh. Okay, February 6th. 
The Dis- this Disney legend was born on February 6, 1934 in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and he has the distinction of attending all 11 Disney theme parks worldwide for their respective opening day celebrations. What is this Disney legend's name? Mm. I I'm not I oh I don't know you've 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 heard him talk. I've heard him talk. So oh yeah, I'm sure okay. you have. If yeah, I've heard, um, I'm going to say then it's uh, Marty Sklar. Absolutely, Martin A. Marty Sklar. He was the Walt Disney Company's international ambassador for Walt Disney Imagineering. He was a student at UCLA and editor of its paper. And in 1955, Sklar was recruited to create an 1890s-themed newspaper, the Disneyland News, a month before the theme park opened. After graduating, he joined Disneyland full-time in 1956, where he held responsibility for most of the park's publicity and marketing materials. In 1961, he moved to Wed Enterprises, renamed in 1986 to Walt Disney Imagineering, where he worked on attractions for the 1964 New York World's Fair. Amongst the attractions he helped to design were the Enchanted Tiki Room and It's a Small World. For nearly 10 years, he wrote personal materials for Walt Disney for use in publications, television, and special films. And in 1974, he became vice president of concepts and planning and guided the creative development of Epcot Center at Walt Disney World. As vice president of creative development and executive vice president and then president of Imagineering for nine years, Scalar supervised the design and construction of Tokyo Disneyland, the Disney MGM Studios, Disneyland Paris, Disney's Animal Kingdom, Disney California Adventure Park, Tokyo Disney Sea, the Walt Disney Studios Park in Paris, and Hong Kong Disneyland. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just got thrown off because I think in the question, I mean, maybe I misheard you, but I thought I heard you say that he's been, he opened all 11 parks. And I was like, okay, I mean, because there's 12 parks. So I was like, is this someone who died before Shanghai opened? And because oh, I, I thought Marty Sklar at first, and then I was like, but. He would. He didn't die till 2017. So no, he he was at Shanghai, and and that was a very. So I, oh, so I apologize for that. That was a very last minute, supposedly a last minute invitation. So because when I last saw him, well, no, I no, because when I know when I saw him before Shanghai opened, I think he might have been at the Walt Disney Family Museum. He said he had not been um, invited, but but. Uh, there were people there from Shanghai, and they were being very coy about it. So, mm. I don't know. Anyway. All right. So, um, well, they weren't there. They we, we were on a live feed. So, they were in Shanghai talking to us, and then he was at the museum. So Interesting. Anyway, yeah. Okay. So, February 7th. The film, considered by many film historians to be the most technically perfect of all the Disney animated features, was released on February 7th, 1940. What is the name of the film? February 7th, 1940. That would have been... That would have been Fantasia. Sorry. 
So, actually, I have it down as Walt well, Disney's Pinocchio. Pinocchio was forty. What year was Snow White? Thirty-seven. Snow White. Mm-hmm. Or was Snow White thirty-nine? No. Oh gosh! Now you have me all thrown off. <laughs> yeah, I'm thrown off on the. <laughs> I'm terrible. No. I'm terrible for with the years. I can do the numbers in my head of what order they released. But I always screw this up, where I start with Snow White at a wrong date. So let me let me go back in here. So anyway, let's see. Now Pinocchio's nineteen forty. Yep, I just confirmed it. What so year was Snow White? Okay, I <laughs> thought it was. Oh wait! Now I got to clear that. Oh, it's thirty-seven. Is that I okay. Thought? See. Okay. Yeah, thirty-seven. Here because there's always like a few years in between. Yeah, and here I was in my head saying, "Okay, well, it's I, I, I don't know. I, I could have swore that, I. But hey, I was wrong. I'm allowed to be wrong. <laughs> anyway. So, anyway, Walt Disney's Pinocchio premiered at the Central Theater in New York City. And, of course, is a living puppet voiced by Dickie Jones uh, with the help of a cricket named Jiminy, who's Cliff Edwards, as his conscience. He must prove himself worthy to become a real boy. Walt Disney's second animated feature cost a staggering $2.6 million to make. And I was not wrong as well, too, in my confusion. Mm-hmm. Fantasia also opened up in 1940. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. Yep. Yeah, and and actually, I think it's um, official release date. It went into wide release like two days later. So, okay. All righty. February 8th. Disneyland officially announced the upcoming additions to Disney's California Adventure in a short ceremony celebrating the park's first birthday on February 8, 2002. What was announced is going to be added to the park? Um, I'm guessing... I'm guessing Bugsland was one of them. Yes. Because if I'm remembering back to our episode that we did on this, mm-hmm. but I'm kind of stumbling over the next one. I, I'm not sure what else would have been. Announced. It was a cloned attraction, sort of. Was it Muppet Vision? No, it was Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. Oh, I. Yeah. That makes sense. I, for some reason, I always misremember that Twilight Zone was there from when it opened, when the park opened, and that was a very quick addition, hoping it would boost attendance. Yeah, which which it did for a short period of time. Right. Well, you did pretty well, actually. We both both went blank with dates on films in that one question, but otherwise, it did great. Good. I hope you all enjoyed this look back at the the late universe of energy and that um, you know it'll it'll inspire you to go out and find a little more about just the amazing innovation and technology that went into the design and and creation 
of this wonderful pavilion. Um, in, in the next installment of our Epcot series, Craig and I will explore the Horizons Pavilion, which has become legendary in 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 the hearts and minds of of many many uh, Walt Disney World um, guests. So. Many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt. Uh, some of the books, a couple of the books I used, The Epcot Explorer's Encyclopedia, A Guide to Walt Disney World's Greatest Theme Park by R.A. Peterson, and Walt Disney's Epcot Center, Creating the New World of Tomorrow, with text by Richard R. Beard. Websites included the Mickey Wiki, History of Disney Theme Parks and Documents, better known as DisneyDocs.net, Lost Epcot, Extinct Disney, Mouse Planet, and Progress City USA. And the video that we talked about last week, Universe of Energy, Martin's Complete Ultimate Tribute. Even if you watched it before, now that we've finished our history of the Universe of Energy, it'd be worth going back and re-watching it. I think that you'll probably um, enjoy it even more. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can see me on all the different shows on the Disunplugged Podcast Network that I'm on. But if you want to connect with me a little bit deeper, uh, you can always find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? Well, you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. On Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Check out the one with the Connecting with Walt banner. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling that is. And you can connect with both me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt, which is our official Connecting with Walt Twitter account. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Legacy Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disunplug.com, or check out the link um, that Craig will have in our show notes. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.